Section 14 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 2, by John Tullock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4, Ralph Cudworth, Christian Philosophy in Conflict with Materialism, Part 5. 3. It now only remains to us, before endeavoring to sum up our estimate of Cudworth as a thinker, to consider him specially as a moralist. So far we have seen the ethical interest that lies at the root of all his thinking. It was this interest, more than anything else, which inspired his first labors in philosophy, and which continued his highest inspiration. The vindication of man's distinctive position in the universe as a rational and moral creature formed the center of his whole system of speculation, around which all its most elaborated reasonings revolved. Man is divine, if there is any divinity at all. All the lines of argument for Christian theism go forth from the recognition of the human soul as a spiritual reality distinct from nature, absolute amidst its accidents, the true life of all its apparent and reflected life. Such a view already implies a definite moral doctrine, for if the soul be thus a reality, distinct in being and supreme in character, it must in itself be an organ and source, and not merely a receptacle, of truth. What is true or false, good or evil, just or unjust, must be determined not from without, but from within, and the determinations will partake of the absolute character of the source whence they proceed. Morality, in its full contents and development, may be an eductive experience, just as every branch of knowledge in its details must be. But the moral, no less than the intellectual judgment, is from the soul itself, the spiritual affirmation of a spiritual subject going forth into the world of experience and conditioning it, in no sense derived from it or conditioned by it. This is the essential point in Cudworth's moral system, which implies and rests upon a distinct theory of knowledge. The treatise on eternal and immutable morality is, in fact, mainly a discussion of the source of knowledge. It sets out with laying down very clearly the question from the author's point of view. Is morality a thing in itself? Are the ideas of good and evil, justice and injustice, absolute or only relative, real or factitious, eternal and immutable, or only positive and arbitrary? Are they what they are, in short, as he often says, fousse, by nature, or thesse, by institution? After enumerating the various defenders of the latter opinion amongst the ancient philosophers, Protagoras in the Theaetetus, Polus and Callicles in the Gorgias, Thrasymachus and Glaucon in the Politics, and Epicurus, quote, the reviver of the democritical philosophy, the frame of whose principles must needs lead him to deny justice and injustice to be natural things, close quote. He brings forward in his usual manner Hobbes, not by name but under the general appellation that late writer of ethics and politics, as the modern exponent of the same views. He has revived in this latter age not only the physiological hypotheses of Democritus and Epicurus, but also the moral paradoxes of the same philosophers. Good and evil are represented by him as only authentic in respect of the human laws defining and constituting them. It belongs to the Christian state to determine what is right and what is wrong. The passages quoted are from Hobbes's original treatise, De Sive, and will be found below. Footnote. Libre De Sive, Capitulum 17, 10. End of footnote. But he gives the same over again in English, our author adds, as follows. In the state of nature, quote, nothing can be unjust. 
the notions of right and wrong, justice and injustice, have there no place. Where there is no common power, there is no law. Where no law, no transgression. Footnote. Hobbes's words are, quote, where no law, no injustice, close quote. End of footnote. No law can be unjust. Nay, he continues, temperance is no more fousse, naturally, according to this civil, or rather uncivil, philosopher, than justice. Sensuality, in that sense in which it is condemned, hath no place till there be laws. Close quote. Footnote. Hobbes's exact words are, quote, the word sensual, as it is used by those only that condemn them, pleasures of sense, having no place till there be laws, close quote. They are used parenthetically. End of footnote. From this attitude of philosophical paradox, he turns to the views of divers modern theologers, who, in like manner, deny the absolute and intrinsic character of the ideas of good and evil by attributing them solely to the positive enactment or command of God. Whatever may be the true meaning of the philosophers, he says, as if himself in some degree doubtful whether he had rightly interpreted them, there can be no doubt that there have been theologians who have thus referred all morality to the arbitrary will and pleasure of God. The ancient fathers of the church were indeed very abhorrent from this doctrine, but it crept up afterward in the scholastic age, and has maintained itself from the time of Occam, under the pretense of being a necessary corollary from the conception of an almighty divine will. As nothing can be supposed apart from such a will, or as existing independently of it, so good and evil, justice and injustice, can only be as derived from or constituted by God. Curiously enough, he afterwards distinguishes Descartes as the chief advocate of such a doctrine. The question being thus stated, he sets forth, for him very briefly, the grounds on which the higher view of morality as in itself something, or a distinct and absolute reality, apart from all human statute or special divine command, appears demonstrable. It is so, one, because it is universally true that things are what they are, not by will but by nature. A thing, for example, is white by whiteness, and black by blackness, triangular by triangularity, and round by rotundity, like by likeness, and equal by equality, that is, by such certain natures of their own. Such properties cannot be changed, even by omnipotence, without abstracting the things. We cannot have a thing white or black without whiteness or blackness, nor a body triangular without having the nature and properties of a triangle in it. Mere will does not and cannot constitute such things, which are what they are in themselves. And so good and evil, justice and injustice, debita and illicita, cannot be by mere will, without the nature of goodness, justice, lawfulness. He has no suspicion that he is here merely stating an identical proposition, that what is moral is moral, that a thing cannot be both moral and without morality, a proposition which no one would deny. But such a proposition throws no light on the question why a thing is moral and not immoral, which is the real question betwixt him and his opponents. 2. Since things are what they are by nature, and not mere will, they are, quote, immutably and necessarily what they are. There is no such thing as an arbitrarious essence, mode, or relation that may be made indifferently anything at pleasure. For such an essence is a being without a nature, a contradiction, and therefore a non-entity. Undoubtedly, as a thing cannot be and not be at the same time, it is immutably what it is according to its nature. Take away its nature, and the thing itself disappears. 
a just act can never be anything but just but this does not explain why it is just or rather why a particular act is pronounced just and another unjust three while it is true that a divine or human command in the form of statute may make something which was before indifferent moral in the sense of obligatory or unlawful yet the real element of morality even in such a case does not come from the mere assertion of will but from quote, the right or authority of the commander which is founded in natural justice and equity and an antecedent obligation to obedience in the subjects Close quote. any law without this natural foundation in right or for the mere purpose of enforcing the will of one upon others is properly esteemed ridiculous and absurd no true obligation can be constituted in this manner for the obligation to obey all positive laws is older than all laws and previous or antecedent to them the bare will of god himself cannot beget the obligation to do anything which is not in itself or in its own nature morally good and just here our author seems to deal with hobbes's position more directly but still too much in the form of mere affirmation without analysis or going to the root of the matter four while therefore there is such a thing as positive morality the moral quality of the things which it enjoins transcends the mere will or pleasure that enjoins them the obligation is not in the mere command but in the relation of the authority to the intellectual nature commanded if for example a father should order a son to do something the duty of the son is not constituted by the mere will of the father but by the fact that it is the very nature of the filial relation to be dutiful and obedient or again the obligation may arise out of our own voluntary act whereby something in itself indifferent may become to us sacredly obligatory as when we make a promise to do something which we needed not to have done the thing promised assumes to us a new relation and becomes binding on us in the highest degree it falls under the general law of keeping faith and acquires all the sanction arising out of the obvious dictates of natural morality the thing is not changed it remains in its nature indifferent as before but to us it is changed and the motive for doing it consists not in the matter of the action but in the principle of keeping faith Quote, wherefore in positive commands the will of the commander doth not create any new moral entity but only divinely modifies and determines that general duty or obligation of natural justice to obey lawful authority and to keep oaths and covenants as our own will in promising doth but produce several modifications of keeping faith but while moral good and evil are admitted to be independent of any created will there are those who contend that they must needs depend upon the arbitrary will of god otherwise there would be something that was not god or did not take its being from him this is plainly asserted our author adds by that ingenious philosopher renatus descartes from whose answer to the sixth objection to his meditations he quotes in proof a passage of some length the aim of descartes in the passage is plainly enough to connect everything including the ideas of good and evil with the determination of the divine will it is a contradiction he says to imagine anything prior to this determination elsewhere in the same answer he maintains that it is manifest in the view of the divine immensity that quote, there can be nothing at all which does not depend upon god not only nothing subsisting but also no order no law no reason of truth and goodness Close quote. footnote these passages will be found in page 160 to 162 
of the third edition of Meditations, with Answers to Objections. Amsterdam, 1650. End of footnote. The analysis of the relation of the divine understanding, or wisdom, to the divine will, is one of those subjects which possessed a fascination for the older schools of philosophy, but which is really quite beyond our penetration or logic. It may be doubted whether substantially there was, after all, such a difference betwixt Descartes and Cudworth as admits of being clearly apprehended. For the latter, no less than the former, of course, traces the ideas of good and evil, and all those necessary truths of which he makes so much, to a divine source. They exist for us because they are in the mind of God, necessary forms of a perfect and immutable wisdom in which we imperfectly share. Only he contends that they are before rather than behind the divine will. That is to say, not even the divine will can be conceived unmaking what necessarily is according to the divine mind, converting, for example, two into three, or square or triangular into round, or truth into falsehood, or good into evil. But Descartes did not or could not assert this. All that he asserted was that these things were so because God had made them so. All possible truth has its source in the divine. Only Cudworth conceives the divine more on the side of mind, a luminous and eternal order, and Descartes, in this case at least, more on the side of will or creative cause. The conception of Cudworth appears the higher and juster of the two, so far as it is possible to separate and compare them. The contemplation of the divine as a bare will is inferior in grandeur and far more liable to abuse than the contemplation of it as an infinite mind at once wise and good. The former, we agree with our author, is a contracted idea of God. The Neoplatonic representation of a divine circle, of which the center is goodness, the radii wisdom, and the circumference will, is, however mystical and enigmatical, more sublime and probably also nearer to the truth. The most absolute freedom of the divine will or activity can only be rationally conceived in union with these other attributes, and executive of them. It is the very perfection of this freedom to be determined by infinite wisdom and goodness. Having thus dealt directly with the problem of morality, and vindicated to his satisfaction its absolute character, Cudworth expands with his usual amplitude far beyond the limits of the special question. He sees clearly that the real difference of thought in such a case is not merely as to the character and origin of moral ideas, but the character and origin of all ideas. The essential problem is, in fact, the problem of knowledge altogether, whence derived and whence authenticated. Has our knowledge an element of universal certainty derived from within, innate and co-divine, or is it only particular, such as it appears to every man, gathered and elaborated by the senses, or at most by the strange chemistry of some intellectus agens, or obscure power acting upon the materials of sense? It is needless to say which side he espouses in this world-old controversy. The remaining three books of the treatise on Eternal and Immutable Morality are devoted to its discussion, and the moral interest, which is yet supreme with him everywhere as a source of inspiration, falls behind the widespread historical and psychological inquiry into which it carries him. He treats first of the Protagorean skepticism, which made all being and knowledge alike fantastical and relative only. This brings him again in front of the sensational philosophy, which he has combated at such length in the true intellectual system 
and he explains once more how it is a degenerate and not a true form of the old atomical and Phoenician philosophy derived from Moscus or Moses. The same field which we have already traversed is gone over with the same result. In the second book he considers the whole question as betwixt sense and intellection, their different natures, and the impossibility of explaining all our knowledge by the former. The fact of knowledge, distinctively so called, or science, cannot, he contends, emerge from sense. Even outward things or bodies cannot be understood without the cooperation of reason and intellect judging of the appearances of sense. It follows from hence, in his own language, quote, that knowledge is an inward and active energy of the mind itself, and the displaying of its own innate vigor from within, whereby it doth conquer, master, and command its objects. The mind cannot know anything but by something of its own, that is native, domestic, and familiar to it. This leads him in the concluding book to explain more fully this innate faculty and its appropriate ideas, intellectual and moral. The faculty is clearly distinct from any mere organ of sense and passion, and marks the whole diameter of difference betwixt man and the brute. The latter is governed solely by its relation to the outer world and the activities of appetite thence arising. It can have no sense of anything beyond the impression which corporeal objects make upon it. But man discriminates betwixt himself and the constant flux of outward impressions, and penetrates to their meaning and reality, their harmony, beauty, and music. All the plenitude of nature, its interior symmetry, proportions, aptitudes, and correspondencies, which suggested to the ancients the idea of pan, that is, nature, playing upon an harp, are undiscernible to mere sense, which in the brute only perceives particular objects, and hears nothing but mere noise and sound and clatter, no music or harmony at all, having no active principle or anticipation within itself whereby to comprehend all, quote, whereas the mind of a rational and intellectual being will be ravished and enthusiastically transported in the contemplation, and of its own accord dance to this pipe of Pan, nature's intellectual music and harmony. There is a whole sphere of being in man, therefore, distinct from the brute, and all the characteristic ideas of metaphysics, mathematics, aesthetics, and morality belong to this sphere. They are noeta and not aestheta the immediate objects of intellection and science, eternal and immutable, as the source whence they come. And so he returns in the end to the central thought of all his thinking, the nature of the human soul. Its divine nature and origin make it distinctive, and an organ of higher truth than the mere world of nature can convey or create. It is no mere passive or receptive thing, quickened and formed from without, an educt of matter finely and laboriously organized, but a living divine power formed from above and endowed with the divine image. This is the only basis of all higher knowledge. And so morality and divinity meet and find a common center. The one cannot be destroyed without destroying the other. Let all knowledge spring from sense, and all morality from utilitarian experience, then man loses the higher side of his being and sinks back into the world of nature. He loses all foothold of the divine, and, quote, there cannot possibly be the least shadow of argument to prove a deity by. Quote. 4. The mass and texture of Cudworth's thought are sufficiently before our readers. We must now rapidly gather up the threads of our exposition and endeavor to estimate his value as a thinker, 
both for his own time and with reference to the present aspect of the great questions with which he deals. His relations to Hobbes and Descartes have appeared with ample clearness. He is the reactionary creation of the former, in the shadow of whose speculations all his own live and move. If the Decive and Leviathan had never been written, neither probably would have the true intellectual system of the universe, nor the treatise on immutable morality. The special substance and color of their thought would certainly never have been what they are. In a lesser but sufficiently distinct manner, he stands in contrast to Descartes, or at least to the more specific and detailed form which Cartesian speculation assumed in the principles of philosophy and objections and replies. To the more spiritual phase of this speculation, the famous doctrine of consciousness with the principle of certitude based upon it, expounded in the discourse on method and the second meditation, there is singularly no allusion either in Cudworth or Moore. Footnote. None that we have traced. End of footnote. It is impossible not to feel Cudworth's inferiority, in originality, clearness, and brightness of conception, to both the contemporary thinkers with whom he is thus brought in contrast. It is not only that he comes behind them in the line of his thought, which, but for them, would not have been laid down, that they are the originators of new methods, pioneers in the freshly opened tract of speculative enterprise, while he is only the reviver and defender of an old position. This would not necessarily place them above him, for it is possible, as in the case of Hobbes, to strike into new paths which only lead to old falsehoods, and which, in fact, are, after all, mainly rediscovered traces of old and wrong roots. In the attitude in which Cudworth chiefly contemplates him, Hobbes has no claim to originality. The antagonisms, which once more meet in them, had been drawn out long before in democratism on the one side and Platonism on the other. And if it is different with Descartes, whose whole cast of mind is of an intensely original as well as powerful kind, it is yet the manner rather than the substance of their thought to which we refer when we contrast them with our author in point of originality. Both Descartes and Hobbes always think directly as well as vigorously. They start from a fresh upturned vein of speculation in their own minds and bring its contents at once before their readers. They have none of the pedantry of learning and the involved modes of approaching a subject which the Cambridge philosophers have. They have something to say which they think new and important, which they have got not from books but from insight and meditation, and they say it out, unencumbered by the thought of others or the trammels of scholastic association. Hobbes was aware of this characteristic in his own case, and prided himself on what he had got by thinking rather than by reading. Footnote. He was wont to say, according to Aubrey, quote, that if he had read as much as other men, he should have continued still as ignorant as other men. Close quote. End of footnote. Descartes is still more than Hobbes the pure thinker. Of all philosophers, perhaps, he is the most directly personal and original, the most independent of all relation to other minds, the most intrepid builder out of the structure of his own thought. This self-possession and freedom give a singular animation and force to his writings, which read to this day as lightly and freshly as when they came from his pen. The style of the discourse and meditations runs as smoothly, rapidly, and delicately as that of a modern essayist, while yet every sentence is weighted with meaning, and the whole compacted and vivified by an intense life of thought. To turn from Descartes and Hobbes, as writers, to Cudworth, is in some degree like turning from the bright and open daylight to an obscure labyrinth. 
it must be admitted also that cudworth is hardly fair and certainly not generously fair to either of his opponents he presses frequently the least favorable interpretation of their meaning and quotes hobbes as we have already said at times with careless inaccuracy footnote it is unnecessary to enumerate instances the reader will find them pointed out in mosheim's elaborated notes a conspicuous instance of his somewhat ungenerous treatment of descartes is found chapter five page six forty six six forty seven folio edition sixteen seventy eight in reference to the same passage handled by him in the treatise on immutable morality which we have considered in the text End of footnote. upon the whole he must be pronounced deficient in a cordial appreciation of contemporary thought his allusions to bacon in the intellectual system are scarcely more complimentary than those to hobbes this may be attributed to the intellectual connection betwixt these philosophers and the manner in which the author of the leviathan sometimes sheltered himself under the opinions and statements of the author of the novum organum but it was also probably due to an instinctive dislike of bacon's method and influence and especially his manner of treating the relation of philosophy and religion the platonic temper could not brook the idea of separation betwixt these two great planes of thought at the same time with all cudworth's dislike of hobbes and the extreme manner in which he sometimes interprets his meaning it is not to be granted that he seriously misunderstands his drift or misrepresents the substance of his doctrines it may be true that theoretically hobbes did not maintain that the civil authority creates morality and forms its only standard on the contrary he frequently speaks of the laws of morality as natural and attributes to them immutability Quote, what they forbid can never be lawful and what they order can never be unlawful Close quote all the same the basis of morality is with him so to speak an unmoral basis unmoral certainly in cudworth's estimate because the human nature out of which he draws it has no primary moral or divine side moral ideas are not according to him the translation of divine thought surviving in man and connecting him with his divine original but only a growth from a rudimentary chaos of craving appetites and passions not only so while it is extreme and so far untrue to say that hobbes attributes all morality to the sovereign will of the state it is strictly true that he assigns no security or warrant for its observance save the supreme civil power if the idea of morality is not represented by him as absolutely originating with the state yet its exercise can only be conceived under political sanction and control man may be theoretically a moral being without the state but he cannot be so practically the civil authority does not create the ideas of right and wrong they are products of our original dispositions but without this authority they have no influence and cannot be conceived coming into any orderly development all moral obligation in short comes from without and not from within from the consensus of political forces which have found an equilibrium in some definite commonwealth and not from any consensus of divine instincts in men or common conscience uttering within them the voice of god such a theory was to the cambridge school radically and entirely false it implied the denial of a divine side in life it blotted out at once all true ideas of good and of god from their point of view it necessarily did so to cudworth it was of no consequence that hobbes spoke of natural principles of morality while he plainly repudiated a spiritual or divine side to human nature save as the expression of a higher law than nature in hobbes's sense morality was not to him morality 
it did not come within the sphere of true obligation or duty which can only find its spring in the divine mind not divine will the eternal order or reason which directs and controls all things this was the essential difference betwixt the two schools of thought and cudworth if he does not sufficiently discriminate hobbes's position yet certainly does not misinterpret his essential meaning as the teacher of a comprehensive system which sought to build up morality politics and religion on an external basis or an enforced consensus of mere selfish interests originally at war with one another of religion no less than morality hobbes speaks with deference and reverence we have already alluded to the manner in which he studs his pages with scriptural quotations there are chapters of the leviathan that look like chapters of biblical exposition more than anything else but all this is beside the purpose the question is not as to what hobbes himself was a christian or not orthodox or heterodox all such personal questions are impertinent in philosophical discussion and although cudworth yields to the temptation of speaking disrespectfully of the consequences of hobbes's opinions he was far too enlightened to make anything of such personal matters the real and only question is not what hobbes was or professed himself to be but what is the essential meaning and drift of his thought what are the principles on which his whole system rests and are they consistent with a rational theory of religion can the ideas of morality and the idea of god be rationally sustained on his naturalistic view of human life and society is humanity to be primarily and essentially conceived on the side of matter or of mind this was the question betwixt cudworth and hobbes it included all else and in supposing hobbes to occupy one side and himself another on this great question cudworth certainly did no injustice to the author of the leviathan nor can it be denied that with all his faults as a writer and his slovenliness and cumbrousness as a thinker cudworth went to the root of his side of the question and has done substantially as much to vindicate it as any writer before or since both the penetration and the comprehensiveness of his views are apparent everywhere at a time when the history of philosophy was still unknown as a science he cast his glance over all the systems of antiquity and brought their results together if not critically yet with an appreciation of their difference and relations which would be in vain sought for in any other writer of the century immersed in platonic and pseudo-platonic conceptions which frequently distort his view of the opinions of others he seldom allowed them to dominate or corrupt his own rational vision he kept the eye of his own reason single and it was a large open and discerning eye on the one hand he sought to purify the conceptions of the popular theology and on the other hand to vindicate for man a genuine sphere of religious and moral idea in which he could move freely yet feel securely the rights of reason and of conscience are alike dear to him he has no conception of truth which cannot be brought to the test of the former and no indulgence for a philosophy which denies the latter as religion is not an extravagance so neither can it be a formality as it is not a mere dream of pietism so neither can it be a creation of statecraft with him as with whichcote and smith inseparably conjoined with morality morality again can only be conceived as resting on the divine and authenticating itself in god man is the creature of god made in the divine image endowed with the divine reason and fitted for divine communion the intuitions of his reason and the dictates of his conscience are alike indestructible the ideas of good and evil are as absolute as the axioms of geometry 
both are true and only true not as constituted by any personal act even that of the supreme will but as expressions of eternal mind the head and ruler of all things life nature history thought are only intelligible in the light of such a mind a central self-consciousness illuminating and controlling all spheres of being the worlds of matter and of mind mind is the originator matter the originated to reverse the order and to make thought the issue instead of the source of material organization appeared to cudworth to blot out all light from the heavens all hope from man it is needless to point out how these questions are as living for us and our time as they were for cudworth and his the very form of them has been slightly altered is man a divine creature or merely the outgrowth of a primitive germ is reason a distinct endowment from above or merely a development of nervous life from below is the world with all its connected species only a hylozoic evolution the ages of which no one can reckon or is it the manifestation of a divine mind appointing all things in their season is it an order of thought or a blind sequence and is the original home of man to be sought in a primitive paradise of communion with god or in the primeval forests of the chimpanzee and the ape are we the children of a divine father or only the items of a great progress from the unknown to the unknown these are the questions which cudworth pondered they are those which our age still ponders if he cannot be said to have solved them he yet steadily and rationally faced them he has shown no one has ever shown better how we cannot work from below upwards and that if we begin with matter and a philosophy of sense we can never reach conscience and a philosophy of reason he has exhibited the coordination of the different planes of thought and made it clear how we must stand on the one side or the other it is not possible perhaps to do more or to fathom the depths of that dualism that meets us everywhere in the last stages of our inquiry if we learn nothing further from cudworth we will learn strength patience and candor in conducting so great an argument his form of exposition may be antiquated but his spirit and reason will never grow old and if we do not come in his pages nearer to that certainty which some minds are destined never to reach in this world of endless interrogation we may be helped to trust where we cannot know to tolerate those who differ from us, and to welcome light and truth from whatever quarter it may come. End of chapter 4, part 5